You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. God, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you uh, that you continue to gather us around your word and this word this morning from the Sermon on the Mount. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would be merciful to us and allow us to hear and to understand and that it would take root, uh, not just in our heads, Lord, but in our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. This is the, the final week that I'll be teaching on this for uh, at least this go-around. And again, I have no delusions to believe that I've said the last word or even the first word or anything in between. Um, of course, you all know this is a dense part of Scripture, Matthew's uh chapters on the Sermon on the Mount 5, 6, and 7. And so by necessity, we've, we've jumped around a little bit, more or less been sequential in terms of uh, 5, 6, 7, uh, but there's parts we just haven't considered uh, in the, the weight uh, and in the uh, detail that I'd like to do. Um, but in any case, you have a handout this morning for parts of Matthew 7. We looked at the first 11 verses last week. But I actually want to start, uh, if you'll flip over to the back, this... Um, sort of parable of sorts that Jesus tells about uh, the house on the rock. And so this is verse 24. I'll, I'll read it and we can discuss. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, he closes with this, Jesus closes this, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Here endeth the reading, as the old prayer book used to say. you know, he kind of drops the mic. Would one of y'all mind pulling that door shut back there? Um, you just never know what you're going to hear um, <laughs> at Church of the Advent. Uh, thank you for preemptively grabbing that one, too. I'm a very auditory learner, very auditory thinker, and so sounds really cause me to uh, be distracted. But visually, I could walk into the same room a hundred times and not notice anything. I'm just not a visual, visual being. In any case, uh, Jesus drops the mic. And you remember how he started off his teaching. You don't have it before you, but Matthew chapter 5. Uh, seeing the crowds, uh, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, that's customary, the teacher would sit down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. That saying, he opened his mouth, it's sort of like a, a look. Uh, this is important, what he's about to say. That's what Matthew's telling us. And in similar fashion, when Jesus finished, this is our verse 28 of chapter 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Isn't that amazing that Matthew says that? I mean, he's more than just simply a teacher, more than a scribe who's a teacher of the law, someone who inscribes the law and memorizes it, but he's the one who actually has authority over it because it's his word. Uh, And again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. We're seeing this enfleshed as he teaches. And so Jesus is our teacher, and again, as I mentioned, in 9 o'clock in the refectory, he's more than a teacher, more than an example, more than a lawgiver. He's our Savior, but he is indeed our teacher. Uh, he is indeed uh, this teaching Messiah, not simply a political leader, but someone who actually teaches. So looking at what I just read a moment ago, what is he teaching here, this little parable of sorts? I mean, it really is 
um, an interesting uh, piece of speaking amidst everything else. Um, um, he's been given you know, rules and laws and um, kind of explaining the law. And then here we have a, a parable. What do you gather from this? I think there's enough of us here we can kind of discuss. Who are the players sort of the, in the story? Yeah, we got two people, a wise man and a foolish. Sort of that classic Jewish wisdom literature. There's two ways. You know, there's the way of the, the wise man and one of the fool. And so the wise man, of course, does what all of us would do if we were building a house. We'd have a firm foundation, a firm physical foundation. And that allows him to have a, a strong house that will not fall. Uh, we've got handouts up here for you all. It's just, just Matthew chapter 7. No, you're fine. Matthew chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, that's fine. But, and we're looking at the back, actually. As, as we all would do, if we were building a house, uh, we would not, uh, at least most of us, I don't want to, <laughs> maybe you've lost an investment somewhere, you would not build it on sand, uh, you would build it on solid solid ground. And then of course the foolish man uh, builds the house on sand, and when the rain comes, and the floods, and the storms, and the winds, it beats the house, and it falls. And then it's amazing, he says, and great was the fall of it. It's like another highlight, uh, how awful this is. Now I guess, is he talking about architecture here? No, of course not. He's talking about, as he says at the beginning, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like this wise man. Now that word, who built his house on the rock, where else have we seen rock in Matthew's Gospel? Jesus is he's talking to Peter, exactly. He's talking to Peter. And it's funny, um, as you turn there, I believe it's Matthew 17. Let me double check that. I may be going too far here. Um, Matthew 16. Oh, that's another thought. Yeah, it falls on the rocky ground. Yeah, that's another place you kind of see rock. No, but I think I think uh, thematically you could you could link those. Um, but but in this case, the rocks are are bad as opposed to to not. Uh, but impenetrable they are. So it's a similar kind of idea. This foundation is solid. It's impenetrable uh, to the storm. So I don't think you're off base. But you're right. In terms of the two parables given, the rock uh, functions uh, positively or negatively. Um, I don't know why I can't find this passage. Uh, someone smarter than me needs to find it. But Jesus is talking, and Jesus, uh, Peter makes the great confession that uh, Jesus is the Messiah, right? And then uh, Jesus says, on this rock the church will stand. And he's not talking about Peter. Actually, as you read the Greek, it's not talking about a human. It's, it's a neuter pronoun. It's talking about his confession. It's talking about uh, the phrase that he just spoke about Jesus being the Messiah. So it's not about Peter being the rock. That's where we've often thought, particularly um, in the medieval church, the Roman church, uh, that the Pope was the rock. It's the confession of the church that is the rock. And Peter stands to, to make that confession, so he gets the nickname Cephas, or uh, uh, the rock, if you will. There's that too. Well, there's both. He's both. Uh, Paul talks about him being a, a stumbling stone. For those that are wayward. Yeah, well, for both Jews and Gentiles alike, he says. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, as uh, Charlie mentioned, he's also the cornerstone. So yeah, this is a rich kind of tapestry of, of um, what's the word I'm here, um, geological <laughs> uh, uh, themes about rocks and uh, that sort of thing. You're looking for 16, 
There it is. I'm looking straight at it, Coffee. Yes, uh, verse 13 is where uh, this starts. I mean, literally. But who do you say that I am? Jesus says. And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And going down to verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That part, this rock, the this is neuter. In Greek, when you refer to a human, you would have male or female. So if it was referring to Peter, it would be a masculine pronoun, demonstrative pronoun. But it's actually neuter. So it's referring back to the, the word spoken. I think it's a helpful point for you and me that no person is our rock except for Jesus himself. No teacher is uh, without flaw and perfect. And we see that with Jesus uh, as in, in this very next uh, passage, uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So some rock he is, right? Uh, and it takes one to know one. I would fall into the same uh, category. Um, in the same breath that I'm praising the Lord, I turn and I curse the Lord. Um, so the rock is not Peter himself, but the confession uh, that Jesus is the Christ. So going back to our passage now in Matthew 7, perhaps that helps us think about uh, what this solid rock is. It's not um, a personality in the church. It's not a movement within the church. Um, It's not even the church. It's the confession of the church uh, being rooted in that. And Jesus says, He who hears these words of mine and does them. And again, that, that divide between hearing but actually have it take root in us and becoming part of us. Not simply intellectual assent, intellectual knowledge, uh, but practical wisdom working out in true faith. Um, And so the foundation of our faith is not how hard we try, not how hard we believe even. We can can white-knuckle it and just say, oh, I believe. Uh, But the foundation is Christ himself. And that takes the burden off of us. It's not in my effort. It's not in my abilities. Uh, we confess that Jesus is the Savior. And that inspires true faith. Instead of saying, I've got to get it figured out, we just teach the faith and it, it catches on. Uh, that's the hope and the prayer, at least. See how difficult and you know, ironic that he's giving the symbolism of a rock that is very tangible, very concrete, and very sturdy. And yet we're basing our faith on somebody that is intangible. We can't see them, touch them. Yeah. You know, it, it, we're supposed to base all of our belief on something that is intangible. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Mary, um, he, throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses very tangible object lessons. He talks about water. I am the door. I am the shepherd. Um, in this case, the rock. Um, yeah, these are very tangible things that we can understand. And Jesus now, who's not physically with us, we don't have physical access, as it were, to him. And yet at the end of Matthew's Gospel, um, he says that he is with us till the end of the age. And so while he's not here in a uh, physical body, uh, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And he's here with us by spirit. But to your point too, while we can't touch him now, this is the very reason God was incarnate. So that we can behold him. And so even though you and I are not looking upon him, uh, we have uh, the scripture that points to him, the confession of the church that has gone back 2,000 years And even before that, the confession of Israel that dealt with the mighty deeds of God, who delivered them from bondage and returned them to the land. So I I hear what you're saying. Uh, Right now, we seem not to have any physical presence of him. And yet here in the church, we baptize people with water. That's a physical, tangible thing that uh, uh, is for our faith. And then, of course, uh, today at 9 o'clock, we took Holy Communion, something we could taste and touch and smell. Uh, Physical things uh, for physical uh, spiritual beings. Jack, yeah. one of the things that I always um, 
I try to think about when we are having communion is, and I can't remember where I heard this, and it may even, the word may even be in the liturgy, but the word is to remember. Yeah. And what I once heard someone describe is that you remember that person. You really bring that member into that space. And I, that always kind of occurs to me when we're having communion that we are re, even though Christ is not physically with us in, yeah. the, in that liturgy, we remember him with us. Yeah. No, and, and the word, the Greek word is anamnesis. And, and for the Greeks, the, the mind of the Greek was rem- remembering uh, memory is much more than a mental or mental, excuse me, uh, chemical process. Uh, but it is sort of a calling forth of, of this person. Uh, and we're talking about Jesus, who is resurrected, fully alive, um, and he can make himself available however he wants to. I don't mind. This is this is a great topic to kind of get off on. Um, there's a theologian, Robert Jensen. Lutheran theologian, he since died, but he talks about uh, what is a body, you know, what is a body, and I don't know how you'd answer that question, but what he says for God, a body is any way in which he wants to make himself available. So if God wants to make himself available in bread and wine, he certainly can do that. If he wants to make himself available in the preached word, I mean, the word we we tend to think it's just a, I'm beaming knowledge to you, uh, but there are little vibrations in the air, physical things happening that reach your ear, and God uses those means to to give you his presence. Isn't that something? Written words on a page. I mean, this is a physical object um, that I can comprehend and understand uh, through eyesight, a physical phenomenon. Uh, so anyone who talks about God simply being spirit, that is true, he is spirit, but he uses physical means however he likes. We see this in the Old Testament. He, he speaks through a donkey, uh, Balaam's donkey. Uh, he can use whatever he wants. St. Paul reflects on this when uh, in the Old Testament when Moses struck the rock. Uh, Paul says that was Jesus that Moses struck. Um, it's really, it broadens our view of what the incarnation uh, of God might mean, what the Word in flesh might mean. But go, going back to our past, I love that. That was, that was great. Thank you, Catherine. That, that was really kind of a fun little rabbit trail for me because I'm passionate about it. You know, we, it's easy for us to say, um, you know, we live in the 21st century. Again, this is way off, but I'm, I'm happy to go here. And post-COVID, so many people still like to watch online, which is a wonderful gift, right? And again, that's a physical, even though it's virtual, it's still I'm seeing with my eyes. But we're missing out on touching the wafer in our palm, tasting the wine on our lips. Uh, seeing the baby baptized or the adult or ourselves if you haven't been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, come talk to me. I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to do that with you. Um, but yeah, I think we're missing something if we think it's merely the conveying of information online. And again, it's a convenience. I'm glad we have it. Uh, and I think all over the world people listen and it's a good thing. But uh, we all long to be in community and we all long to, uh, again, we're, we're spiritual beings with a body. We're not physical beings with a spirit. As Lewis says, we're spiritual beings with a body. And as far as those bodies goes, uh, God can make himself available, available as he would like. And I love how you just related this verse to the Old Testament because you just brought up Moses striking the rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right, rock. <laughs> Bingo. Uh, there's something there. <laughs> That's good. So if we're the wise man, as it were, the wise people, building um, our faith 
uh, on this solid rock. What, what might that mean for us in our context? What, what would that look like in practice? Again, going back, we've, we've believed that that rock is Jesus himself, uh, the confession that he is the Christ. But in practice, what does it mean for us to build this house on the rock? Yeah, it's permanent, absolutely. Yeah, the, the spiritual truths are, are permanent. But I wouldn't say that our church is permanent. You know, if, um, if God wanted the churches of Advent to close tomorrow, he could, he could do it. I don't think he is. I think he has a calling for us, and I do think we're on this foundation. Um, but if we get away from it, uh, the wind surely will knock it over. It's not the church, it's the confession of the church. Yep, that's right. It's the proclamation of the church that's the solid rock. It's Jesus himself whom we proclaim. So yeah, in practice, I mean, we don't move beyond the gospel message. We don't. We have nothing else to offer to the world but the gospel. You can go, um, Eric Sorensen mentioned this on Thursday, our Linton preacher, you can go just about anywhere for good advice you know, a lot of good organizations out there that give good moral teaching, good advice. And the church does that, but um, that's not our final word. It's not our ultimate word. It's not our ultimate calling. Um, again, you can go to the Boy Scouts. Um, you could go to, um, you know, Rotary Club. I mean, all these are good things. I'm not decrying them. Um, but they are not preaching the gospel. That's the church's unique uh, call, and that's, that's our rock. So if we stray from that, not in a judgmental way, but if we stray from that, um, yeah, the winds will knock us over. We'll look more and more like the world, uh, which, as we know, is tossed about by every wind of doctrine. It's tossed about. So the foolish person, the foolish, we'll just say Christian or church or uh, faith person, uh, builds their rock on things that come and go, builds their, excuse me, house on things that come and go, the sinking sand of this world, the fad, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, whatever the fad is today. We don't have to name name those out loud unless you just want to go that go that route. We were talking about that on the way to town today, about how so many churches that I've grown up around have dwindled and are slowly disappearing. And the fact of the matter is that they have gotten away from the primary primary mission of the church and undertaking a more worldly mission. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, you can go any number of sources for good advice, financial counseling, health care, but when you try to inject that into your into the church, you're gonna start losing. Mm-hmm. Because the, God, the the message is the gospel. And when you get away from that People are going to drift away or drift in and out, and it's become it's going to become more of a secular organization mm-hmm. than a, a, a religious organization. I like what you raise. I mean, you use one example of financial advice, and again, you can turn on YouTube or the television and find a church that is given a sermon, if you will, or a teaching series. You know, ten financial principles from the Bible. Well, that's a really good thing, actually. It's a good thing, but that is not our primary call. Uh, you can go find financial advice from the Bible yourself and or you know, go find some other institution that is teaching sound financial advice. But if that's all we're doing on a Sunday morning, go home. Go find something else to do with your time. It's, it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous waste. 
So the primary call is to preach the gospel. And I do think coffee, as you say that, the church still has a call to teach, but it's secondary and tertiary to teach on things. Um, it's applying the gracious word in our world and in our context to, to every level. But that's not our primary word, as you say. My feeling has always been if, we, if the church preaches the gospel in the proper manner, it will lead the people to the right decisions. It will lead us out of some of the things that entrap us. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's got to be started with a proper relationship with God and a proper understanding of what the good news is. Mm-hmm. Then we can venture beyond that into how should it affect our relations with our human, with our fellow humans. Yeah, every every week we hear the the summer of the law: love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength; love your neighbor as yourself. And again, our response is, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Who can do this? But as we've been rejuvenated, revivified by the gospel, uh, then for the first time we can love God and we can love our neighbor. And so it plays out in real time um, as we are changed by the gospel. It does affect our relationships. It does change our uh, relationship with our finances, uh, our careers, our callings, etc. But it starts with that primary vertical call that God has made man right with him through Jesus Christ. Uh, not through our effort, not through our proficiencies, uh, but despite our deficiencies, he has established us in that relationship. Um, what else? This is a very rich passage, by the way. I think it's, it's given us a lot to think about. Yeah, we can flip to the front now. That's good, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Those that know God, those that bear good fruit, mm-hmm. those that follow the narrow path. Um, and to me, I just thinking about like all the self help out there. I, I think the rock is just it is where you go when there's no more advice left. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else that you can do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have God, you fall. Disastrously, but if you have God, that's the narrow path mm-hmm. that's left for you. Yeah, that's all that's left. About this, the times in my life when I was like, "This will never be resolved," and then you get down on your knees and and He does it. Yeah, we talked about that several times over the last few weeks. How when things are stripped away, all the accoutrements of our life, all the extra, uh, again, secondary and ther- uh, tertiary things. All this left is the essential, and we learn that the essential is that relationship with God, which is given to us. It's not earned. Uh, it's not bought. Um, it's given. It's surely a gift. And that can be a hard word to receive because we're so used to having to earn things. We're so used to having to buy things. We're so used to having to prove ourselves. And so when everything's been stripped away, you realize like everything's a gift, and especially and foremost, uh, the gift of God himself. But you're right. Um, this is sort of a, a back and forth of there's, there's essentially two ways in the world. And if we're all being honest, by default, we're on the wide way. We're not on the narrow way. Um, by default, we're, we're bent towards our own destruction. Whether we, whether we know it or not, we are. And so the only one, going back to this verse from 13, the narrow gate, the only one who's taken the narrow path 100% of the way was Jesus. 
That's the only one who's done it 100% of the way. And so we're grafted into that. Um, he, fully God and fully man, does it on our behalf. And so we're grafted in, as St. Paul says. And then, hopefully, it becomes a habit where we can, as life plays out in practicalities, we can be on that narrow path, go through that narrow gate time and time again. But if we don't, if we fall to the wide side, we remember that it's, it, the onus is not on us. Jesus has already done it. And we're reminded of that when the word is preached and it gets us back on the path. Now, what can we say about the tree and the fruit, verses 15 through 20? Yeah. <laughs> you may just be able to speak to that better than I can. Um, so, you know, it, 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 you know, from a from as I said, is to be um, very objective as opposed to subjective. You know, you can see where scientifically this makes sense, mm-hmm. but when you think about your own life, it is. Um, I guess it. It's supposed to bring us to repentance, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, but it's um, it's alarming. I guess would be the word that I would use. Yeah, it is alarming because you start thinking, am I a good tree or a bad tree? Am I bearing good fruit or bad fruit? And again, it kind of throws the onus on us again. Remember, the only good tree is Christ himself. He's the only one. And so when we're grafted into him, then we can actually bear good fruit. And it's not a decision that we make. It's... Uh, the scales falling from our eyes when, when the word is preached to us and we can see the truth for what it is. And then that's when we actually bear the good fruit. This is where, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but the Puritan Project, both in England and North America and perhaps other parts of the world, uh, they got so fixated on verses like this and uh, the navel-gazing happens then. You start looking only upon yourself. And a tree can't assess its own good fruit. A tree just grows or doesn't. A tree can't say, oh, well, this is pretty good fruit. Let's check it out. Like, look at me. A tree just grows fruit. And so our job is not to assess our own fruit. God does that. God's the judge who can assess good fruit uh, or bad fruit. And so we ought not be uh, anxious about that. We just trust that the gardener, the, the holy divine gardener, uh, gardener uh, God himself, uh, is, is watering the plant as it needs, caring for the soil, uh, pruning it when it needs to be pruned, etc. Again, it's in His hands, not ours. It's a passive work on us. And as we hear that message over and over again, that's what actually produces the good fruit. Jay, mm-hmm. one thing this, this makes me think about, um, I don't know if it was Andrew or who that used the term fruit inspectors. Yeah. You know, that we're not called to be fruit inspectors. I think what he was referring to was looking at yeah. other people and you know, discerning is their fruit good fruit or not. But in I mean it's saying beware of false prophets mm-hmm. I get I guess I get conflicted about that. You know, how do you Yeah <laughs> sometimes how do you know if somebody is Good yeah, well, that's, know if it's good fruit or not. That's a that's a that's a good helpful thought. Yeah, we're not yeah, in fruit inspectors. I've been thinking the whole time about the book of Galatians. Yeah, the through. fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Well, no, not necessarily that, but where I mean, I don't know how many of you read the 
the book of Galatians, which, um, uh, speaking of Eric Sorensen, who does a podcast called 1517, that's 30 minutes. 30 minutes in the New Testament, Testament yeah. goes through the New Testament. It's very nice if you just need 30 minutes of listening to the New Testament. Anyway, I've been reading Galatians, and he, I feel like, is a, Paul <laughs> starts off very strongly, um, like, who are you guys listening to? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not the right teaching. This is not what I started teaching. This is not the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that maybe that's what he's talking about here. Is um, is what can you discern right now? Because he's speaking to a, a Jewish community, right? Mostly in Matthew, of you know, of these you know Pharisees and mm-hmm. all these people who say this is the way. And this is how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Jesus is kind of coming in and sort of like tightening the bar, right, and um, kind of just blowing their mind a little bit about everything that they've ever learned, and I kind of feel like that's what he's he's saying, is kind of, can you discern what is real freedom, what is the gospel, what mm-hmm. is, uh, not necessarily like, are you, have you, you know, done all these things and checked off your boxes of the fruits that, you know, or have you exhibited self-control this week, <laughs> you know, and I don't think he's necessarily saying that or check that for your friends but is this person teaching about the gift of the glory of God on the cross in Christ Jesus or is this somebody saying you know you can do these things and God will love you mm-hmm. kind of like keep, keeping what it, what is really the gospel here can you discern that what is the truth of who Christ is I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of what I would think of more of when I think of this fruit and not fruit rather than it's more about the teachers. Maybe I'm wrong. You yeah, no, I think you're right. He starts with that. He says, beware of false prophets. So, yeah, we're, we're not fruit inspectors of the average Christian, but someone who's teaching the fruit of what they're saying, if it's rooted in the gospel, then it's good fruit. It tastes good. It's palatable. Uh, it's healthy. Uh, but if they're not, yeah, I think that's a, that's a helpful kind of application of this, as opposed to being fruit inspectors, like you said, if looking at someone else's uh, yeah, works. Yeah, and less self, yeah. less self-reflective, not using the mirror. Yeah, I yeah, also um, see the the undiscernible <coughs> holy mystery um, because I think of the scripture where Christ says, despising the shame mm-hmm. of the cross, but going forward for the glory, and He was the fruit on the tree. Yeah, absolutely. His body, you know, mangled. He's the good fruit. On the cross. And that's good, and that's a hard mm-hmm. that's a hard truth to swallow. That that was good fruit in all of its ugliness. Yeah, we can't taste that good fruit. Our our palate's not ready for that. It's like my children. I try to give them spicy food. They're just not ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. Over time, maybe, um, <laughs> or sour food, or what you know, intense flavors. Um, and I kind of think about things that Paige and I like. Our taste in coffee has changed over the years. Our taste in wine, it kind of changes, and so. Yeah, I think from God's perspective, um, he's teaching us what actually does taste good. Um, And we call it Good Friday. I mean, that's that's always such a jarring kind of phrase, isn't it? It's only good in light of who who is there on the cross and what he's proclaiming. Uh, If any other person were on the cross, it would not be good. Uh, And it's good in light of the resurrection, too. He comes back with the wounds from the cross, uh, declaring his peace. That's why it's good. Not because we're uh, sadistic and cruel and love to see people suffer. Any other thoughts? I know there's so much that we've not talked about. The golden rule is right here before us. I mean, what a, 
what a rich little line. And again, this is something, the golden rule, you can find in, honestly, most ancient cultures. There was some version of this. Again, I think this goes back to the law of God is written on our hearts. This is sort of a common grace to all of humanity, that we, we do know right from wrong in a general sense. Maybe the specifics are arguable, but in a general sense, we know that love is the ultimate call and ethic, and we fail that uh, miserably day in and day out. Um, so the golden rule is rich and profound as, as it is. That's not the unique call of the church to proclaim that, you know, to be a good person, as it were, to treat others nicely. As good as that is, that's not that's not the gospel. Well, any other thoughts? Yeah, Libby. <laughs> that's okay. Bring it on. It's persistent. It, you. That's all right. Yeah. No, I think it is. I think it's a helpful kind of illustration from your life that when your perspective changes, that God is actually gracious. He's not trying to get something out of you. It's all His anyways. He shared it with you. Um, I think that's, again, that perspective change. When we live according to our understanding of the good news, the gospel, you you do take a breath of fresh air and say, okay, I don't have to prove anything. Yeah, and I, th- I do think that's pertinent. And I think in some ways, in some ways, that is a summation of all that we talked about the last few weeks because he has presented the law, but he's gone forth to say, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. I have not abolished it, but I've fulfilled it. And so if he's done that, he's not this taskmaster thinking, okay, when are you going to get in line? He's this gracious father who says, look, I've done it for you. I've made the way. Just come on in. You're not performing. You're participating in what he's given you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Take a deep breath. Yeah. Yeah. I think that applies to almost every passage in this because uh, if it's me, 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 and mine, I can't turn the other cheek. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. I can't uh, love my neighbor. I can't, you know, I, I just can't do that. I'm incapable. But when he's removed that from me and I can take that breath of fresh air, I can actually see this stuff come to fruition naturally. It's a natural uh, um, uh, fruit that comes from this this good tree. Well, I, I'm happy to let that be the final word. <laughs> well, let's, let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Uh, God, I, thank you for, I do thank you for that final word, um, which again is uh, a reflection of all the good news that you've given us in your son Jesus, that the pressure is not on us. We don't have to perform or prove anything. But all of life is a gift, and moreover, relationship with you is a gift. And so, Lord, we carry that into the world, uh, not having to prove ourselves to anybody, but graciously holding out that word of life that you've given to us. So may we go now uh, and share the good news in our daily lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.